My guest on today's program is Australian economist Cameron Murray. You have probably seen Cam on Q&A and also Sky News or read his material on uh, his Substack page, which is freshEconomicThinking.substack.com. Cam, great to see you again. Thanks for having me back, Nick. There's never been a better time to have you back, I don't think. People are starting to get quite concerned about the economy, and I think for obvious reasons. Yeah, well, uh, the central banks around the world are tightening interest rates. I think they see it differently from many people. They see it, uh, the economy, as being overheated and booming, trying to slow it down, whereas I think the average person on the street is already sensing that we're over the hill of this post-COVID recovery boom. Uh, so it'll be very interesting times to see whether we raise rates into an already uh, declining economy. We've seen you know, peaks in a lot of commodity prices already. So I think 2023 is going to be a very interesting year. Let's just say that. Yes, yeah, so I don't, that doesn't make, I mean, what you've said makes sense, but the, uh, how do I put this? The optimistic forecasting to me makes no sense because I don't see how we can lock down the economy like we did mm -hmm. uh, during COVID-19 and like people like you and me and Gigi Foster, you and Gigi to a greater degree because you're actually, that's your discipline economics. Mm -hmm. Me, I was, as we were saying just off air before, I'm concerned as an Australian citizen mostly, but how can you do that and think that you're going to get away with it scotch-free? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's right. I think some people had the view during COVID that you can just turn the economy off and on like, you know, you, we, we always fix our computers and our electronics by turning them off and on and it reboots and everything's right. back to normal. But we, we don't think about the economy as a system. You know, the economy is more biological than that. Uh, you think of it more as a human body. You, don't, you can't switch the human body off and on, right? Mm -hmm. we, we know that that destroys our, our systems and that's what we've done. And I think a lot of the boom we've had is obviously stimulus related because every country figured, geez, we're just turning the economy off. We get it better, get that spending going. Um, but a lot of it is also just catching up on what would have happened, right? Mm. Um, and I think what we're going to see is we've we swung violently towards lockdown. Now we've swung violently towards catch up, spending the stimulus, and we're going to see another swing back down now as central banks tighten interest rates as we've finished catching up, for example, on housing construction and as inflation takes hold and we see that we have another adjustment now to high energy prices in a lot of the world. Um, so I suspect, uh, yeah, we're in this kind of, it's like a spring, this economy. We pulled it down and closed it. We've, we're shooting up now mm. on that recovery but it's not going to stay up. It's going to come back down again, and we're tightening rates into that that decline. Um, so very interesting times. We saw the um, Bank of England just yesterday come out and predict five quarters in a row of negative GDP growth after mm. quarters. So what's that? A, that's a beyond a depression uh, that, that's recession, a, isn't that's it? That's a major recession, mm. and that's partly because of the energy crisis in Europe, and partly because of. Um, yeah, we've stopped ordering things because of inflation. We've, we've we've reached our limit. So it'll be very interesting. It's 
It's a little bit unprecedented. The US just had two quarters of negative GDP growth. But at the same time, the labor markets are super tight. This is a real puzzle for economists. Um, so, you, What do you mean by that, that labor markets are super tight? Unemployment is at record lows in most of the world right now for levels that we haven't seen for 40 years. Uh, the turnover of people, so people switching from one job to another job, is very, very high. The number of job ads per unemployed person is at a record high. Mm. Right? Is it really that much of a puzzle or is this potentially just a result of, uh, I know that Biden gave um, far more stimulus even than we did. This is going to have a sort of a wave effect for the surfer, isn't it? Yeah. So that wave effect. Um, looking, it, looking for different waves, you know, yeah, to catch. Yeah. <laughs> Don't need to worry about the weather for the swell. So there's an old idea in economics called the hog cycle, uh, like hog as in the pig. Mm -hmm. And the hog cycle is kind of relevant because I think what we're seeing is a macroeconomic version of that. And there are other names for similar things. Um, uh, but essentially the hog cycle says, well, the price of pigs goes up. There's a big boom in the pig industry. Everyone's breeding, everyone's growing more pigs. And then we have this, mm. um, after the boom, this huge glut of pigs and the price collapses. And there's a big pig depression and everyone stops breeding pigs and wants to raise other animals. And then, of course, we see that again. Oh, look, there's no pigs. Pork goes up in value. Everyone does it again. So the economy takes time is the point there. The adjustments take time. Uh, and I think that's what we're sort of seeing macroeconomically. We had all these orders after people escaped lockdown, so to speak. We're catching up on those. But as we've catched up, already demand's falling back down. Yeah, yeah so we're seeing that uh, spring in action. If you're uh, getting paid essentially to stay home from stimulus, right? Not a job, but stimulus. You're, I assume you'd be less likely to report for unemployment. Yeah, so um, unemployment, the unemployment number, the headline that we all talk about, is unrelated to whether you're getting unemployment benefits. So there's two different sort of concepts. One is unemployment the welfare system, mm -hmm. who gets unemployment benefits. And you have to, I think, have below a certain amount in your bank account. Your spouse has to earn below a some certain amount to get that. And then there's unemployment from the labor force survey that the ABS reports. And that's the one that sometimes people say, oh, if you work one hour a week, you're employed. Well, yeah, that's true. It's also been the case for a long time. So we haven't changed the definition. Uh, and we have other measures that adjust for that. And that's the survey-based estimate. And that measures people who don't have work in that two-week window. And that's what's at record lows right now. So it's, you know, despite the stimulus, people are getting up and going to work because there's a record low number of people. And the participation rate, which is the proportion of everybody in the economy who actually is in the labor force, who is either trying to work or is working, is also at record highs as well. So, so yes, the um, paying people to stay at home increases what we call the reservation wage, like how much you have to pay them to get them off their butt. But it seems like the tightness of the labor market and the, the sort of wage pressures in certain areas are actually still doing that. Is there such a thing as a healthy level of unemployment in terms of its relationship to productivity? Well, the classic economic story is there's a, a natural rate 
the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the NARU, if you've heard of that number. And essentially it says, well, people change jobs, uh, people enter the labor force, uh, people leave the labor force, and all these people in that two-week window when you ask them, are you hmm. working, will say no. And so there's a certain amount you need to facilitate the change of jobs and people entering and exiting. And no one knows what this number is. That's the funny thing. We're all... There's this great game in economics of looking at what the survey says unemployment is and then guessing what the right number is. Right. And uh, it's just a sort of game of make-believe. Yeah. Um, and what we've seen lately is actually you can get really tight labor markets if you give people a lot of money and they start spending. But I, my concern at the moment is that this is a sort of temporary effect that we're seeing. We're seeing the, the spring rebound from what we couldn't spend for 18 months in the last couple of years. Um, and then you have... All now. Yeah. Right, right. And then you're, are you potentially left with a situation of um, people with less cash, obviously, than they predicted that they would have because they've spent more at the end of that sp spring? It's difficult yeah, to know. It's, it's hard to know in aggregate because at the end of that, also, we now have more people working, so they have higher income. So it's sort of okay if you spend a bit more now because you're banking on this flow of future income from... Right from working and and uh so so i don't think that's a, a major uh factor at the end of the day what will squeeze people i think is this real tightening of monetary policy we've just seen the bank of england yesterday tighten mortgage interest rates <coughs> uh well, the central bank cash rate so future borrowers of mortgages will have to pay a margin on that now higher cash rate in australia we've seen mortgage interest rates rise you know, the, the average new mortgage was paying an interest rate around 2% 12 months ago. And now it's paying over 4%. So A, mo a month ago. Uh, a year ago, yeah, sorry. A year ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you. A year ago. I was going to say, that's some, that's some serious growth. In, in a year. So we have hundreds of billions of dollars of mortgages. So every percent increase in the interest rate that that group of people pay... Is, is billions that they can't spend on other things. And that's the way monetary policy slows down spending in the economy. It also slows down uh, people buying new housing, for example, right? And so that means if, if you buy new housing, you build less new housing. So then all the builders have less work coming up. Mm. And I just find it's going to be a really interesting time because so many countries are doing this all at the same time. We've seen in the US uh, reports of builders delaying future projects now because all their buyers just disappeared all at once. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, I guess, the concern of the, the, the economy being in, you know, stuck in this motion of huge decline during COVID, huge boom, and then another violent swing the opposite way right now. So, I, 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 you know, it's, it's hard to know. Um, but it's a possibility that that's mm. what we're going to see in 2023. So how do you expect it to happen with mortgages? Is there a, um, a rhyme and reason? Is it firstly such and such will happen and then the banks will raise uh, the, the, uh, the repayment? Is that correct? That's right. And then what happens next? What, what, let's talk to, because that was 2008 in America really right. saw that. Yeah. Maybe you could talk about that and... Yeah, oh, we'll okay. see how it could happen here. Well, it's it's something we 
haven't really discussed, and you're right, there's this parallel to the U.S. pre-2008. What happened in the U.S. were the um, teaser rate mortgages, which is where you pay a low interest rate for a couple of years and then your mortgage reverts back to a higher interest rate. And that got a lot of people in trouble in the housing market in 2005, 2006. In Australia, we've had a similar situation with uh, fixed rate mortgages. And the fixed rate mortgages, you fix your interest rate for one, two or three years and you get a much, much lower interest rate. And we saw a huge proportion of um, new mortgages being fixed rate. And they're all rolling off onto their variable rate at the end of this year and the beginning of next year. And those variable rates, instead of being 2%, so my mortgage, I pay 2%, 2.09. By the time I come off my fixed rate at the end of the year, I'll probably yep. be paying 4% on the variable rate. So twice as much interest. Um, and that's money I can't spend on other things in the economy. And that's what's going to happen to hundreds of thousands of households uh, in the coming months. And I, yeah, I, that's why I, I suspect we're over-tightening right now. We're trying to engineer this smooth, soft landing because we think the economy's in a spiral of overheating. But I don't think the economy's in a spiral of overheating because if you look at commodities, if you look at the cost of shipping containers, yeah. if you look at the cost of microchips, if you look at the back orders of cars, remember motor vehicles, we had to wait months and months. They're finally getting through that. So all those pressures are already receding, mm. but we're acting as if they're spiraling out of control and we're trying to dampen that out of control spiral. So it's going to be a very interesting 12 months. So just what what happened in the United States with mortgages? Because you had these companies like Fannie Mae, right, and State Street, whatever. Um, State Street, was it? In the 2000 2000s boom. No, 2008, mm. when that tanked, when the global economy tanked, mortgages were the big thing, right? And the bank was taking back houses, how, how likely is that to happen in this country? Uh, look, I think not as likely. Uh, yeah, I think not as likely for a couple of reasons. First, my prediction is that when all the economic data starts to turn, when unemployment starts to rise, as everyone gets squeezed by these new higher interest rates, the Reserve Bank will drop interest rates back to zero. <coughs> they will reverse course very, very quickly. Just to ease things. Um, so they, they think that they're stopping an out-of-control boom right now. Yeah. But when it becomes evident that actually we might be in a reinforcing downturn, they will drop rates back to zero mm -hmm. um, within a few months, I suspect. And although that won't stop the slide, what it will do is essentially bail out a lot of people's cash flow every, every mortgage holding household which is about um, a third of households have a mortgage uh, it's going to save them a heap of money and allow them to actually start spending and um, you know getting that business turnover that keeps people employed that's, that's the way I see it. I don't think the central bank will just do nothing I'm talking more Maybe I'll rephrase that because in order for that to happen, we need to be, there needs to be a global depression essentially, right? And where, where the, where the, not, there doesn't need to be, but for us to get hit really hard, 
would you agree that there needs to be a, quite a significant depression in the United States? Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. So Australia is a bit of a cork on the global economic ocean f- floating around. Uh, but I think we're really... The economy, the, the major economies of the world are very well synchronised right now because we all did the same things at the same time during COVID. We locked down and we unleashed. We all did stimulus and yeah, that's why we've had this inflation. We had the supply chain disruptions and we're all doing the same thing at the same time again. So what I'm saying for Australia, I think is actually true in the UK and the US and much of Europe as well. Look, it's gonna, it's gonna be interesting. Um, what is interesting is that, you know, having these sorts of conversations right now, a year, eighteen months, two years ago, was the um, the most inhumane thing you could do. What's that? Well, just talk about the potential um, consequences oh. of locking down economically, right? Uh, so I just want to hit that off the back of that mm. question. I just want to ask. Are more people in the uh, more economists talking about that as a mistake, or or is it pretty much just a no? I think select few. Yeah, it's still a select few. I think the general vibe I get is that I just spent a week at the conference of economists a few weeks ago. All hundreds of Australian economists get together uh, once a year, and there really wasn't much talk at all about hey you can't just turn the economy off and on you can't just turn the hospital system off and on um yeah, the, the the economic machine well does not work like that and we, we will have some future consequences um there was there was almost no talk of that now i guess i i 12 months ago, I think we had a chat and I said, the outlook for the economy looks pretty good right now. Uh, I think I disagreed with Paul and Gigi uh, and I said, look, you know... You were more more optimistic. uh, And at the time, the Commonwealth Bank came out and said the average bank account has $11,000 more in it than it had before COVID. Um, Unemployment's trending down. People will resume spending. And so, you know, it has been a great 12 months uh, and I think where I'm at now is, well, how long does that last yeah. when I think a lot of the factors that led to that boom have burnt out and at the same time we're really tightening monetary policy, not just in Australia, New Zealand went first, Canada, the United States, the mm. UK, even the European Union now, um, all at the same time. And so now I think, well, we've had this little recovery boom. The string got released. We flew up into the air. And as we're coming back down, we're actually pulling down on it again uh, with this tight monetary policy. So that's sort of how I see it. Um, Mm. Yeah, this, you know, a huge economics, unprecedented economic experiment. I, I do wonder what economists in 20 and 30 years time in the future we'll be thinking about this period. Macroeconomists studying the great COVID lockdown, what happens when you turn the economy off and on again? We're not there yet. People don't want to talk about it. But I think in 20 years, when the next generation come through, they'll want to talk about it and go, hey, guys, what happened? 
it's almost that there's almost no explanation for it other than some kind of um, mass. Fo- we we discussed that, but some sort of mass formation that made people irrational out of fear and do things based on fear, including economics, health, economics, education. Everything was done poorly against the previous advice that we'd always had. And yeah. just lastly, on on the economic side, the only person I could track down that had actually done a cost-benefit analysis was this New Zealand guy, Dr. Martin Lally. That's right, yeah. And he came on the show and I asked him, have you, have you spoken to the New Zealand government? And he, sh- he said something along the lines of, they didn't even want to hear about it. Yeah, so that that was exactly what was going on at the time. The Dutch government apparently did did a similar thing and kept it quiet uh, for more than a year. Um, look, I guess I, you know, we can dwell on the costs and that we're gonna we're, we're living them, and and there's a lot of things you just can't catch up on, right? Uh, you can't catch up if you missed a health treatment and you died, right? You can't catch up on a lot of things. Uh, some things you can catch up on. In, in the economy, so it's not it's not all bad. And, and let me give you uh, some examples of what happens. So uh, there's some been a study of uh, worker strikes on the tube in London. You know, the tube is the underground network in London. Everyone relies on it to get where they're going. So if there's a strike, um, it's very disruptive to the city. It's very costly. But what you find is that those days that you force people to experiment with other ways of getting around, uh, when the tube opens up again, people had, because they were forced to, found more efficient ways to get when, where they were going. And that persisted later on after the tube started um, running again, right? So this period of crisis does lead people to experiment with new ways of doing things that does have long-term benefits. An ability to adapt and evolve. That's right. It forces adaptations that might have been too costly or too risky to do, but you do them in that crisis and they persist. If we look at um, a lot of um, online ordering, a lot of um, upgrades of systems so that people can work more efficiently remotely, that's going to persist over time. So, you know, I think that's a very small thing in the grand scheme of things but it also talks to some of the bigger ideas in economics of if if we're coming into a recession well it's also true during a recession that we clean out we experiment with new things and companies that were inefficient go broke and the best ones last and it's part of this long-term process right Mm. so um so i guess my point is that Although I think the, there was a huge economic cost of the lockdowns um, and we saw that as we tried to ramp up, um, turn the economy back on, like every airline in the world, right, <coughs> was turned off yeah. for a year, yeah. year and a half and now they're turning it back on. But, you know, they're going, oh, we're losing bags. I'm like, you fired every baggage handler on planet Earth yeah. a year and a half ago, two years ago and you think you can just switch that back on? This is the problem when we talk about, yes, there are ways, let's have some faith in adaptation, etc. My issue is that we still, that the, the discipline of economics and government is still not talking about it, which means that if it's going to be really bad in five years, as in it might take that long to get downstream, 
locking the... We don't know because it's never been done. It's an experiment. No. I, yeah, you're right. Have, have models been drawn? Oh, no, not really. Not really. So how do we know? We're, we're pretending like it no, still doesn't exist. Yeah, there will be people studying the counterfactual. And if you look at the growth trend of the overall economy, uh, the you know, comparing to pre-COVID gives you some shocking graphs, right? Uh, this this um, analysis by the Bank of England that came out earlier this week, they're talking real wages will return to pre-COVID levels in 2024 to 2026. That's the sort of um, delayed progress. That's probably a better way of understanding it because people go, hey, we're just as well off as we were. Well, that's not the right comparison. That you know, we would have progressed yeah. all through this period, and just getting back to we, where we were is terrible. Because uh, five years after COVID, we should be seeing you know two or three percent per capita GDP growth times five years. We should be fifteen to twenty percent above mm. that point. Um, and so that's the a good way to I guess understand um, the loss. It's not so much that we we don't grow in the future it's that we've just postponed progress and i i talked about that at the time no one wanted to listen um but anyway here we are living it yeah two years later thinking oh great we're getting back to where we were now we can start this process of growth again i'm like, oh, okay it might feel like there's a lot of gains from here into the future despite the potential downturn next year but you, know, you can't make up for lost time. You can't. And I guess what I'm getting at is that that period is still unknown in the field of economics because COVID was an economic experiment, as in the damage. Is that making sense? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm just. It's, yeah. It hasn't been studied. It, ha- People and don't it hasn't been addressed. It. They're concerned. It's a black that- hole of economic Correct. Knowledge. Correct. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Black and no hole. one wants to go near it. That'll be true. That'll be true in public health for quite some time yet, I think, as well. Apparently, childcare now too is battling because they can't get workers. Look, that's I'm, yeah, a lot of places are saying, "Oh, we can't get workers," and I think that again, that's symptomatic of this releasing the spring of the economy. It's not that you'll never find workers, but yes, this year. Everything is super tight. Everyone's trying to travel, catch up on two years worth of travel in one year, for example. Two, two years worth of going out and having birthday parties and get-togethers and things you couldn't do. So you got people getting pissed with hangovers. You've got, on top of that, <laughs> no, that's probably a small percentage. But on top of that, right, sorry to cut you off, on top of that is what something that I'm quite concerned about and have been for, for a long time since it came out, which is the, the rat test, which is made by... Sonic Health, a company that's, of course, recording like record profits, just ridiculous. Yeah, well, Their CEO, uh, Gold, Mark Goldschmidt, who I think they call one of the original Medicare billionaires, or oh, right, right, because yeah. they're. But mm-hmm. but but in their in their AG in their AGM of 2020 2021, they talk sorry 22 they talk about the rat tests and they say that the rat test. Um, well, they talk about the PCR first and they say they give an ac- accuracy rate of around 60%. And then the rat test is less accurate right. than that. So all you have to do if you want to get a day off work, presumably, 
in Victoria, I know they're getting paid. I think maybe someone out there can check check up on this. Go and get one of these stupid little plastic sticks. Yeah. Get ten of them because they sell them in a box of ten. Just keep doing it until you get a positive. Yeah, you certainly could do that. I would have done that if I had yeah. a shitty job. Yeah, I I, I would have and, too. And just one last point on that: after two years of the hell that we've just been through, there'd be a lot of people down and sort of not not pumped up to go to a crappy job. Yeah, I, look. Did I just make, like, am I making all that up or is that? Uh, is that look, <laughs> I, get, I get what you're saying, Nick. Uh, I suspect people have had enough of sitting around at home after two years. I yeah. don't think that's what you want to do. Certainly, there's plenty of people who have bad jobs. And as I like to say, yeah, that's what the money's for, right? So, it's people now have the time, the, the time and the opportunity to get better jobs. And we are seeing that. So I don't, yeah, we are seeing waves of illness this year for sure. And my view is that that's the immune deficit of two years of disrupting our normal day-to-day function. And that was warned about by many insiders. But I think that's also peaked now as well. And we're past that. That was just a, it's a thing that happens, you know, it's not particularly. What are you talking about? What sort of illness are you talking oh, about? Oh, just the respiratory illnesses, right? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, I don't get know. back to regular I'm levels. sure every listener can talk about their family and their friends and their workplace that everyone's been sick. My, my kids at school tell me how few kids there are uh, or were in the last month through that wave of non-COVID respiratory, you know, yeah. viruses. But that, that seems to be passing um, for sure. And that, you know, obviously there's a... Yeah, that doesn't help with the tight labor markets. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, now I, I just don't see that it being a major factor because we have record low unemployment. We have record participation rate. People are out there, they're getting jobs, they're moving to new jobs. Um, it's a very good time uh, in the labor market. I just suspect that it's a lagging indicator of that cycle we've just had. Um, mm. you know, we're trying to fill up all these back orders hire all these people right at the time where your next orders uh, are going to get squeezed. You throw something else into that black hole that we talked about and that's delayed, things like delayed cancer screenings, right? So we don't know what if this black hole it essentially could be infinite in terms of the problems caused by yeah, COVID-19. I, I agree that in terms uh, of public What would you call that, compounding? Like, com- yeah. Uh, yeah, it covers you know a lot I mean, of yeah. parts of social, um, our understanding of society. So, social sciences, economics, and, and public health. Because I don't, I don't know if people realize, but for the elderly, you can the best predictor of health is your social life. The more friends you have and the more socially active Absolutely, you are, yeah. the healthier you are. And, and people might say, well, obviously healthier people can socialize more when they're old. But... Every time we've tried to tease out the causality, it's actually, no, if you force your, your grandparents to come to all your family get-togethers, it makes them healthy. It makes them live longer. Yeah. And this, this is well-established. Loneliness has been, has been written about. Exactly. Uh, and the causality is, is clear. I think there's no dispute there. And we somehow forgot that. So that, that well-established uh, known piece of science in health, public health, again, is now an unapproachable black hole for some period of time. 
Uh, yeah. Although, to be fair, some people are studying this and there's, the media is slowly changing to recognize this. I have seen uh, reports coming out, but um, I think it's going to take quite a long time before we really fully understand that. I wrote a story a few years ago um, when I was writing for the Catholic Leader newspaper and it was I wrote a piece on a, a study that had come out um, about how church attendance, mm-hmm. there's a correlation between loneliness and church attendance amongst society and all these other sort of factors. And what it was really getting at was the church is more like a club. That's right. A youth club it's or a social a club. Social club. It wasn't so much about the um, it's in, not about intrinsic spirituality. Yeah. 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 Um, it's about coming together. And we spend less time. This is why lockdown was all. This is a. We'll put this back in the black hole as well. Lockdown, like you said, people didn't. We go to these these uh, clubs social and events, social yeah. events and whatnot. However, they did go further inwards with devices. Ah, uh, I agree. Look, I, I'm I'm probably a, the worst Twitter addict I know. Uh, I'm very generous with my muting and blocking, so I do find that. I've got to a point where I find it high value for getting news quickly, very informative people sharing good things and not getting sucked into the the social media, uh, what would you call it? Um, the, it, it the, it's, a, it's, it's like it's triggering all the worst uh, frustrations and fears in you. You think? Well, no, social media I think is designed to do that. Yeah. It's designed to upset you, to make you click. Um, I think it... You can flip that and then say that it actually, what it does is it, it creates that by giving you a false sense of doing the opposite, of being around. And It's beautiful. I, I think that's one thing that's going to be very well studied. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not a black hole. That is just, um, you know, the, the greatest gravitational pull for anyone who wants to manipulate others will be social media. Um, yeah, and, and they how found- it changes Sorry, people's thinking, how it changes their views, how it, how it changes your voting. Um, all of that is now, I think, the hottest intellectual real estate um, around because we've shifted so on. We had that real phase change, you know. Online shopping went from 8% to 18% in one year, but social media use and the reliance on it, of it for organizing our social activities rocketed up. At a time, let's be clear, when I thought Facebook had peaked, I thought Facebook was peaking because it was full of nonsense. It wasn't about connecting with your friends. Um, but I think yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing I, I've been saying for a long time. If you're a social media company, COVID is good for you. You want to censor different views because it's just you know, basic, your bottom line, right? Basic Absolutely. financial interest. There's a, there's a book um, that I've just pulled up. I've started reading it. I'm, I've just started reading it recently. It's called Hashtag Deleted Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election by a journalist called Alam Bakari. Uh, so he spent four years investigating Google, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and he discovered um, that basically there's this plot to seize control, as he writes, of the flow of information and utilize that to its full extent by censoring, manipulating, and ultimately swaying the outcome of democratic elections. Mm-hmm. His, well, 
Yeah. I would just say, so his network in of whistleblowers inside Google, Facebook and other companies explain how tech giants now see themselves as good sensors, mm-hmm. benevolent commissars, um, controlling the information we receive to protect us from dangerous speech. You know, so these people are now playing the kind of... That's right. That, I mean, human, that's moral what human beings do, right? We all think we're great and we're doing the right thing and we don't, we can't acknowledge that um, it's our subconscious doing the thinking and we're rationalizing yeah. the thing that's good for us and our mates as being good for society with our conscious brain and here, yeah, pretending we're taking the moral high ground on everything. Like that's, that's textbook. So I, um, I don't know if I told you, uh, you know, I wrote Game of Mates with Paul Friders five years ago and we've just released the second edition, the update called Rigged. It's, uh, it's got new data, new chapter on COVID, a uh, few new examples. But at the when I did these experiments on students, I made university students play computer games against each other. They would steal from other students real money in a computer game because I paid them real money at the end. And then when I surveyed them afterwards, they were happier, those who stole from others, and they said they justified the way they played as being good because if I didn't do it, well, the other guys would have do it. Therefore, it's the appropriate way to play this game, stealing from these rather than doing what's best for everybody. So they, were, they felt happy and they justified it because subconsciously they got sucked into looking after their mates, not censoring, but giving them favors, similar thing. Fascinating. And, but they were happy. So these guys, I 100% am sure feel like yeah, it's God's gift to humanity to censor the evil people and promote the good people at Google. I'm 100% sure and, and they it, think they're doing the right thing. Um, let's take that a yeah. step further, right? Sorry, uh, this, you've just hit, hit, an, hit a cracking point. Let's take that a step further and say that there are actually people and councils and organisations that feel that way about the world, mm-hmm. Right. Things like the World Economic Forum, which is popular now amongst a lot of people because they're discovering that these guys aren't so sort of secret anymore. Mm-hmm. Not that they were ever secret, but we are we're becoming... Maybe it's COVID has jolted people's trust in institutions to the point where they've actually gone out and started reading what the plans are for developing um, the world order. And they're not, yeah. they're not hidden plans. Our, our, yeah. Just let me finish that. They're not hidden at all. They're we're gr- we, we we are group uh, groupish. We are, we, we are groupish. Is that a word? That's the word I use. Yeah. But but let me let me just say this is that while we've been watching our reality TV and eating our donuts, stinking donuts, and drinking our whatever, right? Yeah. They've been doing the work. Look, I, I mean that's I think always true. Yeah. Right. I don't think that's. Uh, a new thing we potentially are in a cycle like a short-term cycle of um you know a battle for control a battle for the hearts and minds agreed yeah um but but every society relies on the myth makers and the high priest to tell everyone the way to behave and filter information and and assure us that those women are witches and these people are evil and that scientist is the devil because of whatever yeah. chemical oh, oh, just to so, but, clarify i'm saying that they are they aren't that for the sake of this argument right. and i agree that they've, they've always been doing it yeah. we've just 
a lot of people have just woken up oh, to. Oh, yeah. yeah. The trust in institutions is very low. People are looking elsewhere now, for sure. I, I agree with that. Uh, right, I'm a, I'm a complete fan, right, of independent media, independent journalists who are out there um, because I've had the experience with the mainstream press as well, not just Google and Facebook censoring. The mainstream press has a view on certain things and will or won't talk about other things. Um, it's funny because I asked a, I asked a journalist recently. I said, "Look, yeah, I've been talking to the media for quite a while now. Uh, tell me, how the hell do you decide what's news and what's not? Right? Because mm. you might get a press release from some organisation, and there's five opinion pieces, and there's this and that. Yet some other really important law got changed, or some kind of whistleblower got." arrested and you did one article that month on page 17 at the bottom tell me tell me what how is this happening how are you deciding what's news i'll give you a recent example um my local member federal now is a greens i live in the greenest area jonathan shree uh, he's the councillor right we got amy mcmahon in the queensland senate uh, queensland parliament and now we have max chandler mather in the federal parliament and he did his maiden speech in Parliament and he talked about vested interests and insiders and if the government cares about housing, they should just build houses for people. He went on his normal rants about climate change and the environment as you'd expect. But it was pretty like it was pretty good sticking it to all these uh, you know, long term cozy yeah. seat warmers in Parliament. And do you know what got all the press? The fact that he didn't wear a tie. Yeah, I mean, not like one, but two articles in the Fairfax Press the following days that about his fashion sense. He wore a suit, just no tie, the same as many people do. And there was no article at all in Fairfax about the content of his speech. Yeah. Now, what the hell is that about? <laughs> I think that that I think that that speaks more to uh, our culture of news and entertainment than it does to journalism because journalism y you're only ever going to find journalism on page it's sort of mm. you know unless you want to read unless you want to read 1500 2000 words on the front page of say a broadsheet like the Australian that's journalism you may not you may not like it but if you're trying to get something in front of people's attention mm. and you need to make money You've got some editor in there that's being told, or he's there, he or she is there, he, she or they, yeah, is there, is there because um, two people uh, is there because they're good at churning out those headlines and yeah. selling papers. That's what it's. I don't know. I, I haven't really answered that. Be well, I guess my question, my point there is this incentive to. Um respond to your audience and put the clickbait at the front and the journalism at the back, I think is a similar underlying incentive that the censoring at Google is. It's like my people need my sort of clickbait and my conversation and I'm going to hide um, important things. Absolutely. So I think it's the same, a, a similar uh, underlying to, motivation yeah. of selecting. You can imagine how... Um, you know, your audience, if you're a particular persuasion, doesn't want to read reasonable things about the other side. No. 
right? So it's a politically aligned newspaper of some so sort or writer. And I think I think that's what's going on at, at Facebook and whatnot. They they want to make it a safe space to gossip about their things and leave aside important but um, uncomfortable things. Uh, they want to create an echo chamber and then publish that and not let yeah. anything in, right? In a way. Oh, of course. And uh, look, that's that's the natural tendency of humans to form their little groups in their echo chambers. It's just, I think this is the first global uh, one. You know, how many billion people are on Facebook and how it's many... It's become are... global. That's right. So the scale is very interesting mm-hmm. and the subtlety of it is also very interesting. Um, this kind of filtering I, the news yeah. feed. So that's what's new, I think, about it. I agree. And I think it's very, very complex stuff. It's become like a matrix sort of thing because what started as, and I've said this a few times on my show, of the kid on the corner, you know, extra, extra, read all about it. Mm. Don Bradman scores 100 in England. You know, like <laughs> a day ago, he's got it through the t- to the progression of what we now have, which is mm-hmm. I don't even want to think how many news stories are being and for the radio listeners, I did the inverted commas there for news um, because I don't think it is news. However, if you're running a 24-hour news station or channel or website, you've got to create news 24 hours a day. That's your business well, model, right? Yeah. So they have to come up with, with shit to do. Yeah, I've learned that. I've learned that, um, you know, have now being a book author and now being a bit more of a public commentator that – um, you can get anything on the news because they have to fill the time, right? You, you just package it up in a way that suits them and you'll get on um, because if, if you align with their clickbait or their audience or you're saying the right thing. Um, and I've learned just how much of the news cycle is recycled stories that vested interests want to promote. Um you know, it, it it amazes me how easy it is to place marketing material as opinion pieces or as news. Oh, yeah. Um, which has been going on, but I think it took me a while to realize the extent of it. It's definitely getting worse. Um, yeah. And I, look, and I think my one of my frustrations is with economic news and the media cycle. So maybe we can bring back together. Can I just make one discussion. point on this? Yeah. Um, lastly, on the person who wrote about the... Ki- the member for Greens, you've got to also take into account that there's the human being level, which is they want to look cool at the party that they go to. I I crush that guy, right? right. That is huge. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're saying there's this social incentive of journalists to look cool by doing this edgy clickbaity thing. hundred percent. It's like, look at the virtue signaling. Well, this person said a racial, so this person's, really racist oh, yeah. it's systemic racism oh, yeah. it, it just we're wanting up one upping each okay. other of grandstanding one upping in the social circle by yeah, signaling your, your commitment to the brand of social justice or climate change or 100 yeah. you know whatever i'm sure it happens with freedom and the right wing and it does that's yeah. fine um but the, in terms of um this incentive and, and what we know about the economy it's also true that Economists who tell good stories get more column inches, regardless of what the economic data is saying or what a reasonable sort of model would would tell you about it. Um, let me give you a, an example that came up recently. 
the the Uber files. I'm not sure if you're familiar with no. that. The Uber files are a leaked cache of documents from inside Uber, the you know ride hailing app. And it turns out that one of these major economic studies on the earnings of drivers in Uber that was done by Alan Kruger of Princeton, who's now deceased, uh, I think about seven years ago, he published it, was widely read. He disclosed that, you know, he got the, um, the data he used from Uber. So, you know, be careful. It turns out in the Uber files, he got paid a hundred grand to write that paper wow. and no one knew about that it was sort of passed off as oh no this is my intellectual curiosity me at Princeton just trying to solve the world uh, nope that was a hundred grand cash to write a paper that was very influential got heavily critiqued by some people what I found interesting about that was um Firstly, there was a lot of press at the time about this paper and not much press about this leaked $100,000 payment. But Justin Wolfers, who um, is an Australian economist now in the US, very high profile, he came out and defended this, right? He came out and said, oh, I know the value. I knew the value of Alan's time and he, you know, $100,000 wouldn't have influenced his decision. He was probably just happy to get his hands on some interesting data and the $100,000 was just a bit of a thank you after the fact. Um, Doubling down. Doubling down on this, but also indicative of the economists and the economics profession's willingness to sort of say what pays. Yeah, And so this leaks into the press all the time, right? So at the moment, uh, the central bank's tightening. So if I say everything's doom and gloom, that's good press, right? Even though I think we're tightening probably a bit much and, you know, the thing economy's already peaked, I don't think it's going to be the worst catastrophe in history. I think we're going to have a bit of a downturn, but we'll quickly adjust to it, right? Um, we're just seeing... This, this motion in action of the, the crash, the boom, and then the mm. sort of the echo of that. Um, but we'll, we'll adjust as well. Um, so, yeah, economists and the economic profession, what you end up getting in the press is a very distorted view of what people think or what's likely to happen because uh, those who shout the loudest or have the most clickbaity views end up getting most of the headlines. Absolutely. And to kind of wrap this up, bring it all together, I think that was the entire problem with COVID-19 and still remains the problem. So I'll give you the last sort of word on that. I agree. Yeah. So at the time, it was cool for economists to all sign a letter about, oh God, what was the term they used? We've got to do an economic freeze. We've got to... um, they, they hadn't. I remember, remember that, that letter. One? I remember the letter well. And they the came conversation up with a, published it. I'll bring it up. Keep yeah, bring it up because they they came up with this term. We've got to put the economy on ice. It was some kind of cool term, and everyone got behind that and said, "No, this is how we got to do it." And it became the real sort of um, the cool kid in economics says this. Uh, Open the, letter from two hundred and sixty-five. Um, yeah. Australian economists don't sacrifice health for, quote, the economy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and what's the term they Why use? Why did they put that in, quote, like, the economy, as in? I have no idea. In, it says, in recent weeks. So I'll try and find this term while you're yeah, talking. Yeah, yeah. So, at, 
you know, at the time, we just forgot a lot of basic things. You know, I'm critical of a lot of what's in the economic textbooks, but there are some basic insights that I think every economic sort of uh, school of thought agrees on and I'm pretty comfortable with those and one of them is the 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 macro economy is a a machine right it's very interrelated it's hard to do hard to break one part of it and not destroy other parts right it's like driving your car and just taking out the crankshaft and go the rest of it will work fine no it's very interrelated right and and every economic school of thought agrees with that but then all of a sudden if it becomes cool to get your name in the press, we forget this and we go, oh, no, we need to put the economy on ice. This No, hibernate. We need economic hibernation. That's right. I think was the, the term they used. And, of course, that got all the rounds and everyone who said the opposite was a granny killer. Uh, and yet, I think at the end of the day, what we've seen is that we sacrificed a lot of health. You can't disentangle the economy from health if you could what why do life expectancies rise so much with economic progress so i right? can't life expectancies yes, rise independently exactly, yeah, yeah. no because we don't really know and we just talked earlier about the social lives of the elderly predicting health care well we knew this but of course it predicts well-being for everybody yes. doesn't it it's like what's old i just turned 40 i'm there i, I should be having lots of parties and get-togethers if i want to stay healthy right there's, there's, uh, I'm going to read, there are four short paragraphs here in, in this. It's a, it, that's the letter, right? I'm going to read you a paragraph at a time and then I'd like you to respond to that. Okay. And remember now that we have the, high, the benefit of hindsight, of course. Mm-hmm. So paragraph one is, we the undersigned economists have witnessed and participated in the public debate about when to relax social dis- distancing measures in Australia. Some commentators have expressed the view there is a trade-off um, between the public health and economic aspects of the crisis. We, as economists, believe this is a false distinction. Yeah, so this is essentially saying I don't believe in economics, <laughs> right? Because economics is about trade-offs. Yes, there's sometimes you can, um, what we call like getting a Pareto improvement, like get, get better f- for everything, but this is just... Um, high in the sky thinking if you can hibernate the economy with no trade-off the question is well why don't you do it all the time why does anyone go to work if there's no trade-off right (laughs) so it's kind of obvious and and i get it you know we hibernate the economy on christmas day and we hibernate it on australia day and and we can do this if we plan in advance and it's temporary but this unknown extended thing just just makes no sense okay carry on paragraph two uh says we cannot have a functioning economy unless we first comprehensively address the public health crisis. The measures put in place in Australia, at the border and within the states and territories, have reduced the number of new infections. This has put Australia in an enviable position compared to other countries, and we must not squander that success. Yeah, well, that... that I think at the time, I probably said to you that we are going to get COVID at some point and this illusion of control will be shattered. And I even wrote that I predicted we will have a massive COVID outbreak in the future with far more deaths than we've had in 2020. 
Yes. And we will do nothing because doing nothing is the right thing and we will learn this eventually. So I think that was in advance we could have known that. And of course, yeah, we can have a functioning economy while health issues exist. I mean, everybody dies from something eventually. We still have a functioning economy. People get sick with the flu every year. We still have a functioning economy. So that that's just make-believe. <laughs> Number three. We recognise the measures taken to date have come at a cost to economic activity and jobs, but believe these are far outweighed by the lives saved and the avoided economic damage due to an unmitigated contagion. We believe strong fiscal measures are a much better way to offset these economic costs than prematurely loosening restrictions. Well, that contradicts their first paragraph because they're basically saying, oh, there's this big trade-off from shutting down the economy, but we think we can address it. So, yeah, they don't really, you know, again, the internal consistency should be step one. Sure. And lastly, as has been foreshadowed in your public remarks, our borders will need to, uh, just a note that that was, of course, this letter was addressed to uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the members of National Cabinet. As has been foreshadowed in your public remarks, our borders will need to remain under tight control for an extended period. You're listening to Nick Holt. As has been foreshadowed in your public remarks, our borders will need to remain under tight control for an extended period. It is vital to keep social distancing measures in place until the number of infections is very low. Our testing capacity is expanded well beyond its already comparatively high level. And widespread contract... I love how they're all of a sudden health experts too. Mm. Already comparatively high level and miss... Oh, sorry, and widespread contact tracing is available. A second wave outbreak would be extremely damaging to the economy in addition to involving tragic and unnecessary loss of life. Yeah, that's just all wrong. Um, And it's funny that you say they became experts because we had in 2019 the Australian Pandemic Influenza Plan that said you can't do contract tracing with a respiratory virus because it just spreads everywhere. Um, It's not really worth it. Um, it's the most important thing to do is not disrupt people's daily lives to make sure the basics of life function well, like the, the hospitals and the schools and everyone's doing their normal things. That's literally what every country agreed was the appropriate mm. uh, response. And these guys got in the press with this crazy commentary that contradicted itself. And, um, and of course, this is another bugbear of mine with journalism. People will still go and ask these guys for their opinions on this stuff. Yeah, I mean, so so, so much arrogance in putting that letter together as if they deserve that mm. deserves to be in the public. Look, and the Great Barrington de- Declaration, written by you know, the world's top epidemiologists, uh, was slandered. Uh, their their reputation's ruined by a press that really wanted that clickbait and to go with the crowd and you know a lot of people say well you know this is symptomatic of the decline of the west or the decline of this or whatever the case may be but if you go to east asia it's worse you still can't travel in japan i've got a friend who can't get married japanese friend because her husband's not japanese 
They, can't, they won't let you in if you're not a citizen. Is that right? Yeah. Still. Yeah. yeah. Still. So these economists must have moved over the cash. Uh, my point being, this, the incentive to do this and the incentive in the press was pretty much the same everywhere. Um, it, it, it was not as culturally dependent as you might think. It's just a very innate human uh, will, uh, desire to belong. Oh, there's this new panic. I belong to the cool guys. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, so All right. here we are. Cameron, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Um, Cameron Murray is one of the OG original gangster economists now, um, just uh, spitting truth as it is. Kem, where can they buy and find uh, Rigged? Rigged is everywhere you can find good books, uh, Amazon, every online shop, and it should be in all the uh, physical bookstores as well. Great. Uh, and the best way to find my regular writing is fresheconomicthinking.substack.com. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Cameron Murray. Cam, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Nick.